Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed of Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less. And we do this all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our studies in the Augsburg Confession, which, by the way, has been a lot of fun because a lot of times when people talk about the distinctions of Catholics and not Catholic, it covers a lot of these subjects. So I encourage you, our listeners, to listen to previous articles, especially from 20 all the way now to 27, because it really hits home the focus of it all, which is Christ and Him crucified and faith. And today in Article 27, we're speaking of monastic vows. There's a theme over all these things. Where do you find your hope of salvation? In Christ or another source? Or maybe this, in Christ and add another source. And you know what? I understand the appeal of this. Um, Nearby where I live here in Sartell, Minnesota, there's a local Catholic university, a wonderful Catholic place, um, wonderful Christian people there. And you see a lot of monks. They own part of the campus. And you'll see them in the chapel. They'll have prayer offices probably three, four times a day. They're studying, they're teaching in the college, local Catholic schools, living a simple life and serving others. And you look at it and go, wow, that looks pretty good. How could we say there's anything wrong with that? Well, today we once again look to Scripture, look to Christ. So open up your book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Jonathan Busher of Zion Lutheran Church in Mount Pulaski, Pulaski, Illinois. Pastor Busher, welcome back to Concord Matters. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's good to be back. All right. Uh, did I say your name of the town right? I think I said it yeah. wrong. What yep. do you got? Mount Pulaski is, is, is right. Pa- Mount Pulaski. All right, we got it. Wonderful. Well, you know, uh, it's great to have you with us today again. And, uh, well, here's a good question to start. Were you like Luther? Did you ever consider being a monk? <laughs> yeah, that's a, I don't think I was <laughs> caught in a thunderstorm and, and made to, uh, take that vow, but, uh, I know it. That's, it that's is a good it, question. Go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm just kind of, I'm, I, I jest because I love. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we are in uh, Book of Concord, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, and Concordia Publishing House. We are specifically on page 53, Article 27. We have quite a bit of ground to cover today, so let's just dig in on page 53 on monastic vows. And so we'll begin with the note, and it reads, This article has in view Martin Luther's experience in the monastery, along with what other former monks had to say about life in the cloister. The idea that a person should hide himself behind the walls of a monastery and perform spiritual works to make himself more worthy of God's favor has no biblical justification at all. During the Middle Ages, many common people believed that only priests, monks, or nuns were truly performing spiritual work, but such a view contradicts God's word which teaches how all of life is an opportunity to serve God, giving him glory by serving our neighbor. Even today, 
is assumed that activities at church are somehow of greater value than the common everyday duties life requires of us. This article extols such biblical duties as being a faithful husband, wife, son, or daughter, and takes great care to reject monasticism and explain how harmful and dangerous it is for those who are entrapped in it. Forcing chastity on those who have not been given this gift is particularly harmful, since many are led to believe they merit God's grace by means of their sacrifice, not the sacrifice of Christ. Pastor Busher, I mean, it really gives us a great overview here, but can you tell us about monasticism and part of the issue as we begin to look at this important uh, article? Yeah, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is that, you know, as we uh, study the the life of Martin Luther, uh, you basically have to uh, start with his life as being a monk, like, and he he lived this for several years, and so he definitely knew what he was talking about when it came to any, you know, errors or abuses or things. I mean, he, he lived it firsthand. Um, and there's this, this quote that he has and he says, uh, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I might say, if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. And so he was, you know, uh, the star student uh, in his in his monastery, so he definitely knew what he was talking about. And it's one of those realities. If if monk if if Luther was not feeling worthy of being saved, then we all would be lost, right? <laughs> no, no doubt about it. Because um, you hear about all the different languages he knew, and the Latin, and the Greek, and the Hebrew, and all of these things that, and he knew the scriptures so well. He's just a just a master teacher. That after all of that, he was burdened by, it did he do enough? Well, then I think we all have a problem. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, if um, anyone was attempting, you know, the monastic life, uh, it was certainly him. And yeah, he was, even though excelling at it, you could say, uh, he still had that uncertainty about what God thought of him and his uncertainty about his forgiveness of sins. You know, there's these stories that Luther would be in the confessional booth making confession, and then he'd come out of the booth and then like turn around right away and go back in because he thought of some more sins. And you could just tell that his uh, his conscience was burdened and that even in this place where he was supposed to be pleasing God, supposed to have certainty, um, he was it was far from it. And I'll tell you what, that brings up a good point. I would encourage our listeners to go back to Article 25 when it talks about confession, because actually in the Augsburg Confession, it speaks about confession twice, which I think addresses exactly what you just said. Is It says in both of these articles, do not try to um, confess every one of your sins and, and, and able to continue to have an anxious conscience but to rest on the cross and rest on the empty tomb. I mean, that is two times in this. So exactly what you're speaking about, it wasn't just that there was monastic vows, it was the practices as well that brought these great burdens. So it really, it really builds off each other nicely as we get into Article 27. So, uh, Pastor, I think I'm ready to start digging in. Are you ready? Yeah, I, I'll i just mention a little bit about maybe what uh, the life of a monk was like. I kind of oh, found please this do. Please do. Go for it. Uh, resource. But basically, um, 
uh, one of the hallmarks of the life of a monk was that you had these uh, daily worship services. Usually there's like seven uh, in the day and uh, we'll probably recognize some of them. They had names like like matins or vespers. Uh, we have those in our hymnal as well. Uh, but then there's other ones throughout the day. And so they're often doing that. But if they're not in church, they're supposed to be uh, busy. So they either had chores to do um, or they had work to do um, uh, in the community or they were supposed to be studying and praying, like you said um the monks that are next to you, they're, they're, they're teachers and they're um, uh, helping in the community sometimes. Um, maybe some of the people listening, if they went to like a Catholic school, some of their teachers were nuns. Like that's still kind of something that happens today. But uh, so they were very busy. Um, and one of the things that Luther remembers is that he uh, basically injures himself trying to do all of this activity above and beyond. Like later in life, he has digestive issues. And he kind of says that was because of his monastic life where he would uh, sleep without blankets or sleep in the snow or, you know, they didn't eat very well either. Uh, And so uh, the life of a monk was, I would say, relatively difficult, especially in his day. Um, But it was probably quite a bit different than than we're used to, especially uh, often uh, there was silence that unless maybe you were in your worship service, uh, you really weren't talking, especially during mealtime. And I feel like in our day and age, I've always got something on TV, radio, podcast, something, there's something always in the background. Um, So that would be a big difference for me if I were to do that, to have that uh, silence uh, would be a lot different. And some of those things, they sound good, right? I mean, it sounds good to have silence. I know you have you have younger yeah. children. I, you know, my kids are older, but still there's always a lot of noise going on. It sounds great, <laughs> but then it isn't, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, nature abhors a vacuum kind of thing. And, and silence is, you know, the, the idle mind is the devil's playground. And so you have some of those things where you just kind of, man, it just kind of, it can be filled with other things. And so you kind of go back and forth with, it looks good, but is exactly, this is what God wants for us. Pastor, anything else you want to highlight? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, pretty much it as far as the the background of what a monastic life would be. But um, as as we'll learn, it's, it's something that people got into um, uh, sometimes on purpose, but sometimes not as well. They kind of found themselves doing this whether they wanted to or not. Mm. Well, let's dig in. We are on page 53 of Article 27. We'll be reading substantial portions of this because we have quite a bit of ground to cover. The main thing is to listen to listen to exactly what Melanchthon and the Concordians were confessing about the main thing as we look at monastic vows. So we begin on page 53, number one. It'll be easier to understand what we teach about monastic vows by considering the state of the monasteries and how many things were done every day contrary to canon law. In Augustine's time, there were free associations. Later, when discipline was corrupted, vows were added for the purpose of restoring discipline, as in a carefully planned prison. Gradually, many other regulations were added besides vows. These binding rules were laid upon many before the lawful age, contrary to canon law. 
Many enter monastic life through ignorance. They were not able to judge their own strength, though they were old enough. They were trapped and compelled to remain, even though some could have been freed by the kind of provision of canon law. This was more the case of, in convents of women than of monks, although more consideration should have been shown to the weaker sex. 1 Peter chapter 3. This rigor displeased many good people before this time who saw that young men and women were thrown into convents for a living. They saw, they saw what unfortunate results came of this procedure, how it created scandals, and what snares were cast upon consciences. They were said that the authority of canon law is so great a matter was utterly set aside and despised. In addition to all these evil things, a view of vows was added to displeased even the more considerate monks. They taught that monastic vows were equal to baptism. They taught that monastic life merited forgiveness of sins and justification before God. Yes, even added to the monastic life not only merited righteousness before God, but even greater merit, since it was said that the monastic life not only kept God's basic laws, but also the so-called evangelical councils. They also made people believe that the profession of monasticism was far better than baptism, and that the monastic life was more meritorious than the, that of the rulers, pastors, and others who serve in their calling according to God's commands, without any man-made services. None of these things can be denied. This was all found in their own books about monasticism. How did all this come about in monasteries? Excuse me. At one time, there were schools of theology and other branches of learning, producing pastors and bishops for the benefit of the church. Now is another thing. It is needless to go over what everyone knows. Before they came together for the sake of learning, now they claim that monasticism is a lifestyle instituted to merit grace and righteousness. They even preach that it is a state of perfection. They put monastery monasticism far above all their kinds of life ordained by God. We have mentioned all these things without hateful exaggeration so that our teacher's doctrine on monasticism may be better understood. Pastor, this how, well, let's, let's break it down simply this way. How did the Catholic Church view monasticism at this time? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good question. And here we kind of see the what the real issue is when it comes to monasticism. I mean, it's not even necessarily that there are monks and nuns or monasteries and convents, but it's, it's really about this teaching that if you become a monk or a nun, or if you take these vows, um, then you are uh, earning the forgiveness of sins. And as you just read, um, that they were even, you know, greater, more powerful than what you get from baptism. And so that's really where the problem is when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. They're saying if if you're a monk or, or, or a nun, that's uh, way beyond anything else you could do in this life. And that, that's where the problem is. There was one time in my first congregation, there was a wonderful man named Joe Edo Huber. And Joe was from Germany. He grew up, he was in Germany until he was like eight. He knew German uh, and he had Roman Catholic background. And he said when he was a kid that basically his church, and I can't speak for the whole church, um, Roman Catholic Church in general, but he said as a kid, they would tell them that if you became a monk or a priest, that your parents would then go to heaven. So that probably is reflective in what we're reading here today. Any other thoughts on how that would be 
proclaimed or to me, it's really, this is something I never heard that they would have said it's above baptism, but what, what's the problem with that? I mean, I, I know there's a problem with it, but what, what would you say, what would be the issue? Let's just say, well, okay, maybe that's possible, but what would be the right. issue? Yeah. I mean, that that's certainly a good recruiting tactic at, at the very least, right? That <laughs> not only would uh, your own sins be covered, but I guess uh, even some others, which, I mean, that is basically part of it. If, if your life is holy enough, kind of your uh, extra uh, good works you earn can be given away to others. But yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, as Lutherans, our um, our, our focus and center on, on baptism in Christ and what it does to us, what it gives us, that forgiveness, life, and salvation. So it, it's particularly shocking to us, I would say, to hear anything to be above that. Um, but basically, the fact is that you know a monastic vow is something that that we're doing that 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 we're taking. Um, and when we understand baptism to be all these things that God is doing for us, that just simply puts this huge burden upon us. And we can maybe empathize a little bit with what Luther was going through, that if he was trying to live this out, this monastic vow that's even greater than baptism, it, it certainly puts a lot of burden uh, on you trying to make that a reality. As we look at everything that is being said, uh, it is interesting, like we, it has a quote on number 12, but also so-called evangelical councils. Did you find anything on that? What, what are they speaking about? Yeah, and that's um, something that I'll confess I had to look up. I wasn't exactly sure uh, what that meant, but um, when I looked, in, looked into it, it's, it's basically, um, basically a Christian extra credit is kind of how I uh, came to understand it that, um, you know, we as Christians, uh, as we know God's laws, um, there's a lot of them that are applied to all of us. And so that would be things like, you know, the Ten Commandments, those are for everybody. Uh, But then there's these evangelical councils, which are kind of above and beyond. And those are really kind of only set aside for maybe the super Christians, if I could say that, or in particular here as uh, for monks and nuns. But these are uh, basically three specific things. uh, As I was doing my research, Um, they are chastity and poverty and obedience. And these are three things that are part of your vows when you would enter a monastery or a convent. So you have to vow uh, to live a chaste life, uh, a vow of poverty, and a vow of obedience. And so uh, those are, it's kind of a technical term for those three things um, when you go into the monastery. And it's going to have a different flavor everywhere you go. Like, for example, here at St. John's, that's a Benedictine order within the Catholic Church. And so, and, and you know, Luther was part of the Augustan, Augustinian um, order as well. And then, you know, Mother Teresa created her own order. And I mean, you have all these orders that there's going to be a different flavor everywhere you go. Um, but it is kind of the basic understanding of if you're going to make salvation about what you do, you're always going to ask for extra credit. <laughs> Just like when you take a test and you fail, 
you're always going to ask for extra credit because you know what? We know we're going to fail. So that's one of the the realities as you look at this. And I want to speak more about chastity, which actually puts us right into the next section, which we'll read, which is on page 54 of the Book of Concord. Um, Number 18 is what the first concern they had. First concerning monks who marry our teachers, our teachers say that it is lawful for anyone who is not suited for the single life to enter into marriage. Monastic vows cannot destroy what God has commanded and ordained. God's commandment is this. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is not just a command given by God. God has created and ordained marriage for those who are not given an exception to natural order by God's special work. This is what is taught according to the text in Genesis 2. It is not good that the man should be alone. Therefore, those who obey this command and ordinance of God do not sin. What objection can be raised to this? Let people praise the obligation of a monastic vow to make to, to as much as they want, but they'll never be able to destroy God's commandment by means of a monastic vow. Canon law teaches that superiors can make exceptions to monastic vows, how much less are monastic vows in force that are contrary to God's commandments? If, in fact, an obligation to monastic vow can never be changed for any reason, the Roman popes could never be granted exception to the vows. For it is not lawful for someone to make an exception to what, God, what truly is from God. That Roman pontiffs have wisely judged that mercy is to be observed in those monastic obligations. That is why we read many times they have made special arrangements and exceptions with monastic vows. The case of the king of Aragon, who was called back from the monastery, is well known. And there are also examples in our own times. There, I mean, there's quite a bit there. But as we hear about this, it is, it's, it's kind of criticizing the vow of chastity. I mean, think about this. Uh, what, what, don't we also have kind of a vow of chastity for those who are outside of marriage? How would we reconcile what they're saying here? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly good to point out that right there, our expectation for ourselves as Christians, that unless you're married, you are, uh, you're supposed to live a chaste life, right? There's no, supposed to be no sex outside of marriage. So whether it's before marriage or you know, if your spouse passes away, then once again, that applies. Um, and so we basically have that expectations, yes, for our, our own people. Um, so that's maybe kind of, you know, the common understanding of the sixth commandment, that kind of a thing. Um, but then if it's this evangelical council, this kind of extra credit, it's basically this um, vow to say that you'll never uh get married and that you'll never have uh, sexual relations. Um, and therefore, if you do that, because lots of the regular people do that, if uh, you kind of do this special thing, then it's kind of this ec- way of getting extra credit and, and favor with God. So the the issue becomes then, as they're pointing out there, you know, God created us uh, and he is the creator of sex as well. He calls it a good thing. And uh, we're supposed to have children. And uh, ordinarily, men and women do get married. Um, But they're kind of making this man-made rule that goes against God's own law, uh, where, yeah, we can't uh, 
make up our own rules to go against gods and hope things turn out okay. It's just not going to work. And it is interesting because I think many times when you have 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it speaks about that some people are given the gift of a chaste life. Like they never get married and they're perfectly fine with that. I don't know about you, Pastor, but I've had those kind of individuals, um, those individuals in the parishes I've served where they never got Mm -hmm. married. They're not just wandering around all sad all the time, that they're perfectly fine with that. I have people like that in my family as well. Never got married, never have held this great burden because they never were married. And those are the individuals who say, well, God's given them this, quote, gift. But also, that doesn't mean everybody has to because God's law is very clear that be fruitful, multiply, that that we are supposed to enjoy one another when a husband and wife are together. Um, this is where children come from, and this is the formation that we have of the future generations in the faith. And so when it says it's not good that man should be alone, doesn't mean you have to get married of every individual, but also you can't keep marriage from Christian people because that's part of who we are. Being holy is not just locking yourself up in a room. It's actually enjoying the good gifts our Lord has given to us. Any thoughts on that? Because it is that's something I think a lot of people, 1 Corinthians 7 specifically, a lot of people don't know about that part in the Bible where actually, you know, you're not, you don't have to get married. <laughs> you know, God does give this. Yeah. Gift. Yeah, you're right. And that's, um, it, it is a good thing, uh, to be single, uh, to live that, that life. And there's plenty of ways that you can honor God and love those around you. And that, and that life. And, but on, on the same hand, we can also say, uh, that getting married is also a good thing. And, uh, blessed by God. And so, you know, they really shouldn't be in, in competition with another to say like one's better than another and, and you should do this or, or shouldn't. But yeah, the problem comes in again, where, uh, they're kind of re- requiring this, you know, I think of, you know, there's some churches where they, uh, basically require you to have the gift of speaking in tongues as an example, where mm. to prove you have the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Well, I mean, if that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't give that out to everybody all the time. You know, we're the different parts of the body of Christ, right? We all have these different gifts. And so some get that gift, just like some get a gift of um, this lifelong chastity. Um, But as we read scripture, it's not a gift that he gives to everyone. And, and that's okay. Uh, but we, we can't require it of everyone. Well, we're going to talk more about that, but we need to take our break. We are studying the Augsburg Confession, Article 27, and we'll be right back. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. And 
welcome back. We are studying and confessing Article 27 of the Augsburg Confession on monastic vows with Pastor Jonathan Busher of Zion Lutheran Church in Mount Pulaski, Illinois. Pastor, we have gotten through uh, number 26. We have a lot of ground to cover. However, I want to make sure that we're covering every part that we have. And I want to highlight this story. There was a, a lady that I knew. She was married, had, had two children. And she was just telling us in Bible study one time is that she said, I felt guilty when I was pregnant. And some of the older ladies are like, what? Why? <laughs> What's going on? And she said, because everyone knew that I was, you know, having sex and speak it out, out loud. I'm having sex. And therefore, I felt guilty because that's kind of how we have kind of portrayed the Christian life that, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. And so it's amazing to me how something like this, there's always another little special law that we will put in. And, and so even this confessing lifelong Lutheran was feeling bad about something that we would consider to be holy, that she was with her husband and that she was, you know, having children with her husband and in marriage, both Christian people, but yet guilt just kind of sneaks in. The devil does it. Our old Adam does it. We always want to add more rules to the list in order to feel better, let alone sometimes even to feel saved. And any thoughts on that? Other ways that this happens even today? Yeah, no, that that's a good point that um, whenever we have these gifts from God, um, yeah, there's always a way in which they do get twisted. I mean, that's just the reality of living in sin. God gives us a good gift and, you know, we find a way to abuse it and misuse it. And certainly when it comes to sexuality, there's all kinds of things that go wrong. Um, but almost so much so that uh, we forget that it is a gift from God and it is a good thing. And that, um, you know, we're, we're supposed to be able to uh, enjoy it. But yeah, the, that guilty conscience kind of follows us around wherever we go. Well, let's continue on. We're on page 56 of the Augsburg Confession, Reader's Edition. And now it gets to the second point, which brings us to some more questions that's good for us to always ponder. 27. In the second place, why do our adversaries exaggerate the obligation or effect of a vow when at the same time they do not have anything to say about the nature of the vow itself? A vow should be something that is possible. It should be a decision that is made freely and after careful deliberation. We all know how possible perpetual chastity actually is in reality and just how few people actually do take this vow freely and deliberately. Young women and men, before they are able to make their own decision about this, are persuaded and sometimes even forced to take the vow of chastity. Therefore, it is not fair to insist so rigorously on the obligation. Everyone knows that taking a vow that is not made freely and deliberately is against the very nature of a true vow. Most canonical laws overturn vows made before the age of 15, before that age, a person does not seem able to make a wise judgment and to decide to make a lifelong commitment like this. There is another canon law that adds even more years to this limit, showing that a vow of chastity should not be made before the age of 18. So which of these two canon laws should we follow? Most people leaving the monastery have a valid excuse, since they took their vows before they were 15 or 18. Finally, even though it might be possible to condemn a person who breaks a vow, it does not follow that it is right to dissolve such a person's marriage. Augustine denies that they ought to be dissolved. 
Augustine's authority should not be taken lightly, even though some wish to do so today. So, Pastor, here, they're, I mean, they're talking about a very clear problem. But I, I want to say this, that it, it seems like they're railing on vows. But we, you know, there's, I would say, confirmation would be a vow of sorts. Um, that our marriage vows are very clear to us. Our godparents, when we're baptized, take a vow. So clearly we're not against vows, but what's the problem with the vow that they speak of? Yeah, that's true that we, you know, do make promises kind of throughout uh, our lives at, and at different and varying ages. Um, I think any parent with, with teenagers would kind of nod their head and say, before the age of 15, a person does not be able to make wise judgments. That's <laughs> probably a, a relatable note that, that they make. But yeah, that um, there's, there's certain things that uh, you shouldn't be making promises about, especially if you're not old enough to kind of fully grasp that. Um, so on, on the one hand, I mean, usually, you know, here at Zion Confirmation, we kind of do that traditional thing where you are confirmed at the end of your, your eighth grade year. And those kids are, you know, what, 13, 14 years old. So that's, that's kind of around this age where we have them make this vow about, um, being faithful, uh, to, to the faith, you know, confirm the faith they were baptized in. Um, but, but this vow is, um, something kind of above and beyond. I, I underlined this part where it said a vow should be something that is possible. And that's um, definitely the case that the Holy Spirit uh, gives us faith and preserves us in faith. And that's something that every Christian has. But when we talk about, especially this vow of chastity, if it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, it, it's not necessarily given to all Christians. And so we can't have everybody making this vow if if God hasn't blessed them in this way. So that's kind of the, the, where the problems arise. And it is, it is something for us to, to ponder as well is, okay, so let's ask the question, why do we make a vow of confirmation? You know, why do we make promises um, at, at our wedding day? Uh, why do we do such things? And we need to sharpen our skills, I think, in this, to be able to actually say, I make this vow for this reason. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven, Jesus says. And that's why we have something like confirmation. Um, obviously, marriage is very explicit in Scripture. Um, when we talk about raising children in the faith, that's very clearly there. It doesn't say, use this exact rite that we have, like in a baptism or a wedding. But everything points back to Christ. The problem with monasticism is it didn't they kept making up more rules. I was reading um, the order of uh, St. Benedict and it is fascinating that like one of the rules in there was no laughing. Oh no. <laughs> and which, which what, what you and I have a problem right. already this morning um, on that. And, and it, it made sense. The rules, right? There's times where is laughter hiding something else is laughter covering up, you know, and trying to make, make light of something that's very serious. I mean, you go that they went the very impressive list that St. Benedict had. The problem is that, is that explicitly scriptural? Like, is that, you know, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I mean, is that really, you know, how, uh, how we are to see uh, our Christian life? And that's what we always have to ask. Is that in scripture? 
or is it not? So um, I don't know. I don't think I would have liked that uh, rule. No laughing. So any <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> what's your thoughts here? Yeah, Pastor? I know. I I love watching stand up comedy. So that would not that would not go along well. <laughs> but and but it is a good reminder of this. And this is just how can I serve my neighbor? And sometimes you know laughter is not what we need to be doing at that moment. So that's not a scriptural thing. That's just more pastoral care and spiritual care of others. Pastor, anything else you want to highlight um, in these? Verses, not verses, excuse me, numbers 27 through 35. Well, yeah, maybe one of the other distinctions we could make um, is about, you know, the vows that we take um, do not earn us favor with God. Um, so one of the distinctions between the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church is the number of sacraments that we have. We usually talk about two, sometimes three in the Lutheran Church, mostly baptism and communion. Um, but in the Catholic Church, they have seven. There's baptism and communion like we have, but they also count things like confirmation and marriage as sacraments, and those involve those vows. Um, they have a couple more penance, kind of like confession, absolution, anointing of the sick, uh, like last rites. And then the last one is holy orders, which is like uh, ordination. And so um, when we connect making a vow with earning God's favor, I really think that's where the writers of the Augustana are um, making their opposition, that uh, making vows is not a bad thing. Um, Making promises is what God does, and so we can do that as well. Um, But when we do that with the intention of earning God's favor, um, you know, we never say that making a vow earns the forgiveness of sins. And so that's that's important to keep in mind. Well, let's continue on because those are great. Uh, it looks the same. Here's what's, here's what's fascinating to me. It looks the same. Um, just like when we talked about good works here in uh, Article 20, the good works look the same. So a Lutheran goes and does a good work in the eyes of the culture. A Catholic goes, goes and does a good work, let's say in the 16th century that it looks the same, but the motivations are different? And what is the foundation is different? Is this to please the Lord, or is it out of faith that our Lord has given all things to us through Jesus Christ? Now, what we don't want to do is go too far into that and question everything when they do a good work and say, but do you really have faith? I'm not so sure. Um, But it is one of those always coming back to faith, which we will very explicitly see throughout the rest of this article, bringing us back always to Christ and him crucified and the gift of faith that he gives to us by his Holy Spirit. So we are on page 56, number 36, and we'll continue to move forward. Although it appears that God's command about marriage delivers many from their vows, our teachers introduce another argument about vows to show they are void. Every service of God established and chosen by people to merit justification and grace without God's commandment is wicked. For Christ says in Matthew 15, verse 9, In vain do they worship me as the doctrines and the commandments of men. Paul teaches everywhere that righteousness is not to be sought in self-chosen practices and acts of worship devised by people. Righteousness comes by faith to those who believe that they are received by God into grace for Christ's sake. It is clear for all to see that the monks have taught that services made by the people make satisfaction for sins and merit grace and justification. 
What else is this than detracting from Christ's glory and hiding the den- and denying the righteousness that comes through faith? Therefore, it follows that monastic vows, which have very widely taken, are wicked services of God and consequently are void. For a wicked vow taken against God's commandment is not valid. For as a canon says, no vow ought to bind people to wickedness. Paul says, you are severed from Christ, you who have be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Galatians chapter 5. Therefore, anyone wanting to be justified by his vows makes Christ useless and falls from grace. Anyone who tries to connect justification to monastic vows base, bases his justification on his own works, which properly belongs to Christ's glory. Pastor, these words are absolutely um, a masterpiece of us thinking about everything that we do and kind of calling us to the table when we try to sneak ourselves in. How would you break this down? <laughs> yeah, that's um, a good a good question because it seems like it's something that we as humans always try to do that uh, God gives us a certain amount of laws, uh, but then it seems like whether, you know, good intentions or not, we kind of add things to it. Um, and then we basically end up just adding more and more, but then we kind of get away from the center and basically inventing, uh, laws, man-made laws. And then as Jesus often, you know, uh, yells at the Pharisees for, they, they care more about their own laws, uh, like tithing their spices. Then, uh, he says, uh, actually obeying the laws, like the fourth commandment, honoring your father and mother. And so uh, that's how he comes out and even says it's it's wickedness, where we try to invent ways to worship God. And he's over here saying, I, don't, don't do that. I, I, I've told you exactly what it means uh, to worship me, right? Love Love uh, God above all things. Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have to invent things uh, to try and earn my favor. That that's already been given. And that goes back to simply the Ten Commandments. You know, it, it, the moment you get past the first commandment, actually, you never get past the first <laughs> right. commandment. That's more than enough, right? What do I love more? What do I fear, love, and trusting more than God? And then it goes, if you even somehow think you have a chance, you get to honor your father and mother. And every confirmand, the ones who are honest, which many of them are at that stage, are like, yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if they really are pious, and they, oh, I do everything my parents tell me, and I don't even think bad things, they get to Eighth Commandment and talk about false, false testimony against their neighbor, and they're done. I mean, there's right. no chance. I mean, do we really need to add anything to that list? Um, I don't know. Your thoughts? Yeah, well... And maybe the flip side of it is, I mean, since God is holy, his commands are holy. If we come over here and make up rules that we're able to keep, I, I guess maybe that makes us feel better because like, here's a rule I made up and then I kept it as opposed to actually dealing with what God has given us. And like you said, we we don't stand a chance of doing that on our own. As it says in number 42 on page 56, it, you know, it talks about you are severed from Christ, which really kind of brings me to my to my knees uh, because while well, he's speaking not only about them but really us because like you said we will add laws in our own hearts or like Luther talks about our hearts being an idol factory 
that that we do that as well. So you're just like, oh my goodness, yeah, maybe, you know, what about this? And he says, number 42, therefore, anyone wanting to be justified by his vows makes Christ useless and falls from grace, which is reminds us, you know, Christ died for no purpose, as Paul speaks about. Um, well, no, he did die. And therefore, when we try to sneak anything else in, we make him having absolutely no purpose. And I don't know about you, Pastor, but I don't want to make Jesus um, not have a purpose. That's not good. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's uh, anytime we try and get away from Christ or add to Christ or subtract from him. Yeah, that, that means we're going down the wrong path. Anything else you want to highlight before we move to number 44 and beyond? Um, yeah, no, let, let's keep going. All right. Number 44 on page 56 and goes into number uh, page 57. It cannot be denied that the monks have taught that they were justified and merited forgiveness of sins by means of their vows and observances. Indeed, they even in invented greater absurdities, saying that they could give others a share in their works. If anyone wanted to make more of this point to make our opponents look even worse, even more things could be mentioned, things that even the monks are ashamed of now. And on top of all this, the monks persuaded people that the services that they invented were a state of Christian perfection. What else is other than what else is this other than assigning our justification to works? It is no light offense in the church to set before the people a service invented by people without God's commandment and then to teach them that, sir, that such service justifies. For a righteousness of faith, which ought to be the highest teaching in the church, is hidden when, the, when these wonderful and angelic forms of worship, with their show of poverty, humility, and celibacy, are put in front of people. God's precepts and true service are hidden when people hear that only monks are in the state of perfection. True Christian perfection is to fear God from the heart, to have great faith, and to trust that for Christ's sake, we have a God who has been reconciled. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It means to ask for and accept from God his help in all things with confident assurance that we are, we are to live according to our callings in life, being diligent in outward good works, serving in our calling. Pastor, I want to begin with this. As we look at... Um, Whenever there is a, quote, good work, whenever there is a, uh, a vow of sorts, the question is, are you parading that around people, especially when it's not biblical, or are you doing that in the back room because you, because you want to glorify God and not get the credit? And what was kind of happening in those days when they were making these vows and doing such things? Was it, was it done humbly and and kind of in secret, or was it kind of paraded around like this great and glorious thing? Yeah, I mean that that's a good question too, because you know when they they took these these vows, I mean it was pretty clear that they were kind of this uh, higher tier of of Christianity, and that's whenever you get into this uh, two tier Christianity, where it's you know you got you got the regular folks, but then you got the super Christians, I'm just going to say, um, that, that runs into trouble. And it's, uh, we do the same thing, but maybe we say it in a different way. It, uh, it, it's sometimes like, uh, oh yeah, Jesus is your savior, but is he also your Lord? Like Jesus is my Lord and savior where it's, 
like this two tier Christianity where what you're doing isn't good enough. You got to add something to it or else you're not on the level uh, with me. And that's where he comes in and says, you know, being a monk or a nun, that that's a, a state of perfection. Uh, later, they'll they'll tone it down a little bit and say, well, that's just where you can at least achieve perfection. It's not saying that all monks and nuns are perfect. Uh, but still, the message is clear that this is the route you want to go if you're serious. And one of the fascinating parts of this is it doesn't it doesn't end by saying, oh, by the way, you can't be perfect. <laughs> it actually gives us a feel for perfection as Lutherans. So this is one of those realities. I think it's good for you, our listeners, to hear this and to make sure we're defining things correctly because this could be very misconstrued. But in number 49, it speaks about being perfection as Christian people. It says God's precepts and God's true service are hidden when people hear that only monks are in a state of perfection. True Christian perfection is to fear God from the heart, to have great faith, and to trust that for Christ's sake, we have a God who has been reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. And I'd like to read that here. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, Paul says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Pastor, it says here that there's perfection. How do we make sure we teach this faithfully? Yeah, I mean, that's a a good point that sometimes, you know, we often uh, are, are very good at confessing we're, we're, we're not perfect and, and that we're far from it, the side of eternity. Um, and that's certainly true. But I think the way we can faithfully confess perfection is when it is connected to Christ, right? If we're saying we're saint and sinner, that that saint part about us is true in Christ. And that's where uh, our perfection, our holiness comes from. And as they say here, it's it's uh, great faith and trusting in Christ and fearing God from the heart. Um, it has uh, really nothing to do with us, but basically only trusting in the things that God has given to us. One, well, it's fascinating too, because um, it speaks about it, as you said so well, that it, it comes down to faith, trust that for Christ's sake, we have, we have a God who has, who has made us reconciled, basically. It is, that's exactly what it is, excuse me, basically. And this is so simple and dare I say boring. So <laughs> someone hears this and they're like, well, that's kind of boring. What would, you know, some you know, you're one of your confirmands as you teaching confirmation right now, they say, pastor, that's boring and too easy. Kind of lame. What would you, what would your response be back? Yeah. I mean, and that's really where I think we have to spend a little bit of time because one of the things Luther is, uh, advising against from his own experience in the monastic life is that um, this whole idea of vocation or calling that we Lutherans like to talk about um, where we are, ought, we ought to be faithful in the callings to which God has put us, right? Those different roles like 
father and mother, husband, wife, son or daughter, you know, that's where we have been called. And that, and, and, and those things are what God wants us to be doing. And, uh, you know, one of the terrible things that was happening was people were abandoning those callings and going off to the monastery, going off to the convent to live and leaving behind their spouse, leaving behind their kids uh, in doing what they believed was God-pleasing, uh, making the, the vow uh, in the monastery rather than keeping the vow uh, to their spouse or keeping their vow to be a parent to their children. And so um, that that's certainly a very sad uh, thing about monasticism. But uh, what it does for us is that ordinary, everyday, and yes, even, even boring things, uh, the classic example, right? Changing diapers, things like that. Those are uh, blessed by God and give glory to God because everything we do in faith um, is a good work. We don't have to run to the monastery uh, to do that. We can do all of those things um, right where we are, right where God has placed us. And it, it speaks even, you know, so here it is. And I love how you said that because at the end of 49, it means to ask for and expect from God his help. And this is one of my encouragement to you, our listeners, as we're speaking of, um, I guess you say what we're against and where we're always pointing to faith throughout the confessions and more importantly, scripture, even better. Um, it speaks very vigorously of the living and active faith life that we have, that faith does not sit around that faith is living and active, like the Word of God is living and active, that God is going to help you do what you need to do in your vocations. That that how many times do we forget to pray, Lord, help me to change those diapers. Lord, help me to, to do the daily tasks. Lord, help me to be confident and have the assurance that as I am redeemed in Christ, I will be able to, at the end of year 49, to live according to our calling in life, being diligent in all work, good works, serving in our calling. And so that's my encouragement to our listeners is that for you to think about your vocation right now and the list that you already have. And when you do that list, you are fulfilling God's, uh, God, you're being holy in God's eyes, in faith, in Christ, that he was what he's all done for you. And the Lord will help you fulfill what needs to be done. So, Pastor, as we look at um, the end here, we have about a minute left in our time. How would you uh, summarize this article and encourage our listeners in Christ? Yeah, I think the main things that we take away from this are that um, we cannot invent ways uh, to please God. We cannot um, earn our own salvation or uh, get credit or even extra credit with God it, it, that's, that's not how it works. It's it's the other way that it is God who gives us the gifts and it's God who puts us uh, in these these callings and these places. And the, the good news about that is that we, you know, we don't have to go anywhere, uh, live at the monastery or, you know, we don't have to go to a, another country or, or, or something like that. God has given us the things that we need to do here in our lives today, your your family, the the local congregation, uh, that's where God has called you and placed you, uh, and He equips you to do that. And and 
and by faith and by forgiveness, we live those things out. And those things are extremely pleasing to God, to be a faithful spouse, faithful parent, faithful uh, child, um, that that is what God calls us to do. We don't have to go looking elsewhere or try and invent some way to please God. Pastor Jonathan Busher from Zion Lutheran Church in Mount Pulaski, Illinois, confessing the truth of Scripture from the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Busher, thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finneran. Thank you for joining us. Continue to fill your daily vocations, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of His hand.